it's, it's very interesting when you talk to a scholar or a historian and you say, what are the books that influenced you? What are the thinkers that really shaped the way you view the world? And we spend our whole life reading books, hundreds if not thousands of books. And sometimes you even sort of forget what books you've read. But a handful will stick out because there'll be books that somehow change the way you view the way the world works, fundamentally alters uh, how you view an important historical incident, changes the way you think about even doing the practice of international affairs uh, or history. And Fred, at least for me, wrote one of these books. Uh, in 1999, a book came out called Choosing War, uh, which was a book about the decisions US policy made, makers made during the long 1963, as he called it, the summer of 1963 through the 18 months that followed through the spring of 1965. It gave, to my mind, far and away, the best explanation for something that we still wrestle with to this day, the great American tragedy of US military involvement in Southeast Asia. It's a book that had a profound impact on me. Uh, I still go back and read it. I teach it every time, pretty much every year. I've been responsible for Fred getting uh, all sorts of uh, good royalties. But it was, a, it was a before I had met Fred, it's just absolutely remarkable, important book. I would argue, and I don't even know what would be second place, the most important, best book on the origins of the American involvement in the Vietnam War. So you can imagine how excited I am to see this second book. Uh, it's a book that has been a decade, more than a decade in the making. Part of its um, sort of intellectual origins actually happened in the building next door in a conference that Fred and our good friend and colleague Mark Lawrence put together on thinking about the nature of the conflict in Southeast Asia in the 40s and 50s, the origins of it, and has led to um, what many are describing as just a masterpiece and uh, a masterwork. Embers of War, The Fall of Empire, and the Making of America's Vietnam. It had a glowing review last week in the Sunday New York Times. The Wall Street Journal did uh, uh, a, a very favorable review on it. I won't embarrass Fred by reading the blurbs on here, but one should, once one gets blurbs like this, I think you sort of die and go to intellectual intent. So uh, uh, congratulations, Fred. And I, I'm about 50 pages through it. It's just unbelievable. Um, Fred manages to be this world-renowned scholar while doing all sorts of other things as well. Uh, he runs a center, a center far bigger than the one I run, uh, and he does it very, very well. The, I always mispronounce it, the Analogy Center? Close. The Analogy yeah. Center, which is not just a center of international affairs, but uh, includes things from food policy to area studies. Uh, and he's their uh, director. He's the John Knight Professor of International Studies and the Professor of History at Cornell. Uh, he's written lots and lots of books. He was here a few years ago with a good friend of ours, uh, Campbell Craig, uh, where they wrote uh, essentially what is now, I think, considered one of the standard textbooks for understanding the Cold War, in particular U.S. policy in the Cold War. So uh, all of our speakers are good. I like all of our speakers. I say nice things about all of them. This one's really special. This one's really special to me, and this is one that uh, I consider Fred uh, not just a, a friend and a great colleague, but a real mentor and someone I really look up to. So would you please give Fred Logaval a warm Strauss Center Well, thank you, Frank. I'm, I'm tempted to say to Frank, could you say all that again, please? Um, it's so nice to be with you. Uh, and as Frank said, it's it's um, not quite full circle for me. Uh, the book project, I had signed the contract and I had begun some work on the project. But when Mark Lawrence and I um, organized a conference that was held here in Austin at the LBJ Library, it was at a key early moment. It was a conference on uh, what we call the First Vietnam War. Very self-serving on my part to, to nudge Mark to do this because I had signed the contract for the book. We brought in lots of interesting people. The volume, or the papers were then gathered together in a volume that, that he and I co-edited um, that uh, Harvard Press um, put out. But so good to be back. And of course, before that, several times I was in Austin for uh, research pertaining to choosing war that Frank mentioned. 
um, and it's always so nice to come back. I want to talk today about Embers of War. I wrote the book really for, for two reasons. The first was a growing conviction on my part when I was researching Choosing War and then subsequent to the publication of that book, that in our rush to get to America's war, we, scholars, myself very much included, had given uh, short shrift to the period that, became, that came before U.S. involvement, uh, or at least heavy U.S. involvement. I became personally interested, fascinated by this early period, uh, by World War II, by the French war that followed, and then, of course, early American involvement after the French were defeated. Second, um, I determined that we didn't really have a full-fledged history of that period, uh, a kind of international history that took us from the end of World War I, when the future of European empires seemed secure, through the interwar period and World War II, and, and I'll talk in a moment about uh, the Second World War. Then, of course, the French-Indochina War that followed. Absolutely fascinating story in its own right, I, I, I believe. And then what we sometimes call the interregnum, that period between the French, the end of the French uh, struggle and uh, heavy U.S. involvement. When the United States, the United States makes the fateful decision to build up and then support South Vietnam. There was lots of important scholarship, to be sure, uh, and we've, we've already mentioned Mark. Mark's book, Assuming the Burden, is a, is a key source, uh, cited a lot in my book uh, for this early period. And lots of French language literature, lots of other work that I utilized. This book is in part a synthesis, but I did feel that we didn't have anything like the kind of book that I've produced. So those are the two things that really... Um, drove me to this. I wanted to understand how the Vietnam struggle happened. Why is it that Vietnam became the setting for um, arguably the longest and bloodiest conflict of the second half of the 20th century? Why did one Western power lose, lose, lose its way there, and then another Western power opt to try to succeed where the first one had failed? Those are the questions that are at the heart of the story. It's really the story of the arrival, or of the demise of one Western power in Indochina uh, and the arrival of another. It's the story of a stunning victory by revolutionary forces in the field. This is in part a military history I've written somewhat to my surprise. But a stunning victory by revolutionary forces in the field. A victory, however, that, as we all know, would not end the struggle for Vietnam. By the way, something I think that Ho Chi Minh and Vo Ninh Zap, the architects of that victory, understood even as they were celebrating uh, that French defeat. Three things I want to try to do today, and also to preserve some time for discussion. Um, I want to talk about World War II, and it's important. Then I want to talk a little bit about um, um, what we scholars refer to as contingency versus structure, or contingency and structure, and I'll explain what I mean by that. And if there's time, I want to then say a few words about, I want to connect the French War and the American War, talk a little bit about some of the striking similarities that I see in terms of what the French experienced and what the Americans would then find when they themselves were in the war. So I'm doing this in a little bit, in some ways, backwards. I think quite often when we give a talk like this, we go from the general to the particular. I'm going to focus on the particular to begin with. I'm going to talk a little bit, of, as I said, about World War II um, and then go to some broader, broader points, second and, and, and third. So let's, let's travel back to World War II, if, 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 we, if we can. The basic point here, and it won't surprise you, is that the war was of profound importance profound importance to all that would happen subsequently in Indochina. Prior to the outbreak of that war, of the Second World War, French colonial authorities in Indochina had ruthlessly put down nationalist agitation, and the relative ease with which they did so, the relative ease with which they carried out this crackdown, the French, I think 
was a sign of the continuing weakness of nationalist opposition within the Indochina prior to, uh, say, 1939-1940. So that a few thousand French officials could maintain effective control over some 25 million Indochinese. A reality, it seems to me, that casts doubt on the assertion by some historians that colonial control was already in the interwar period all, uh, drastically undermined not merely in Indochina, but all over the empire. Now, perhaps, I will concede, the seeds of the empire's ultimate collapse were already planted, its racist foundation more and more contrary to the spirit of the times. But as the 1930s drew to a close, only the most optimistic Vietnamese revolutionary or the most pessimistic French colonial administrator could believe that France would soon be made to part with this jewel in the imperial crown, uh, with this pearl of the Far East, as it was sometimes called. But of course, we know that that's what happened. A tidal wave was coming in 1939-40, one that would sweep over Southeast Asia and leave behind a new configuration of power. And by, by the way, and I'll come back to this, perhaps the key part of that new configuration of power is the dominant position of the United States in world affairs and in, particularly, in particular in, in East Asia. And I'll come back to that. France, as we all know, was swiftly overrun in a mere six weeks uh, in, in 1940 in the Battle of France, despite having arguably the largest uh, army in Europe. Japan took advantage by swooping into Indochina and taking de facto power. The Japanese left the French in day-to-day -day control. They practiced a form of imperial, uh, informal imperialism. Um, but everybody knew who held the real power in 1941, 42, 43, 44, in that wartime period, that it was the Japanese. And this hollowness of French power was made even more stark in March of 1945 when the Japanese, facing their own defeat in the Pacific War, the Japanese launched a coup that formally abolished French, uh, even this, uh, this pseudo-control over Indochina. And I argue in the book that this was a pivotal, pivotal moment for France and Indochina, uh, because colonial rule, as I suggested a moment ago, had been possible with a small number of troops. It had been based on the notion of European, uh, European cultural and military supremacy. And even though Japan, I'm sorry, France had offered little more than token resistance to Japan in 1940, only now did most Viet Vietnamese fully grasp how superficial was the French basis of power. France, all independent observers could, could agree, had experienced a severe decline in power in both absolute and relative terms as indeed had all the European colonial powers, Britain, certainly, but also the Netherlands, Belgium, Portugal. And if an Allied victory in most theaters seemed all but certain in March of 1945, and highly likely in the Far East, for Ho Chi Minh, Vietnamese revolutionary leader, for other nationalist leaders in Asia and Africa, the continued viability of the colonial empires was anything but assured. So this was a kind of uh, this was an, uh, an opening for them, as Ho Chi Minh said at the time. This is our moment when we need to strike. The stage, I want to suggest to you this afternoon, was the stage was set for a collision of nationalism. Nationalisms, as I put it in the book. In Paris, however, these myriad problems concerning the colonial enterprise were ignored, or at least unacknowledged by politicians who found it easy to assume that France's five-year nightmare was over, that things could now go back to be more or less the way they were before. So that what we find is that time and time again, French leaders, including Charles de Gaulle, spoke of the cohesion, of the unbreakable bond between metropolitan France and its overseas territories. Like so many Frenchmen, de Gaulle failed to grasp that the colonial people colonial peoples might consider liberation from foreign rule as important as he did, having, of course, lived under the Nazi occupation. He didn't grasp that others might think this as important as he did. Because for him, and for many other Frenchmen and French women, 
It was self-evident that the colonies were essential to the pressing task that lay ahead, namely restoring France to its central place on the world stage. And there were other motivations, too, which I won't talk about today. Uh, economic motivations, for example, to reclaim Indochina for France. The Michelin Company was a strong proponent, for example, of doing that. Now, as I, as I suggested a moment ago, World War II was of immense importance for another reason, namely the emergence of the United States to a position of predominant power in global and especially Asian affairs. And I think it's quite remarkable in a way that I don't think I anticipated when I started the research, but that I detail in the book, the degree to which all players in the Indochina struggle in 45 and 46, all of them looked to the United States, or at least believed that the United States would have a great deal to say in terms of what would happen. What will the Americans do? That's a standard question in Paris, uh, in Saigon, in the jungles of Tonkin, which is where the Viet Minh under Ho Chi Minh um, established their, their headquarters. In Moscow, uh, among Chinese leaders, what will the Americans do? So it should not surprise us that on August 30th, and you know this story, some of you, Ho Chi Minh sent a letter to Harry Truman via, Ameri via American authorities in China that asked for the Viet Minh to be involved in any Allied discussion regarding Vietnam's post-war status. Harry Truman did not reply. And there would be more such letters in the months to come, from Ho to Truman. These two would go unanswered. But I think it's this first one that lingers in the mind. It's this first one that lingers in the mind. Because August 1945, I want to suggest, was the open moment. When so much hung in the balance, when the future course of the French imperial enterprise in Indochina was anyone's guess. The energies of Truman and his foreign policy aides may have been directed elsewhere that month. To the paramount tasks in post-war Europe, obviously to securing Japan's formal surrender in the Pacific. Obviously, they had bigger fish to fry. But savvy French and Vietnamese leaders were not wrong to attach so much importance to American thinking. For at the occasion of Japan's surrender, the United States had an extraordinary political power in Asia of a kind never seen before, or I would suggest since. For tens of millions of Asians that summer, the very remoteness of America added, added to its allure, to its perceived omnipotence. In the words of journalist Harold Isaacs, who traveled in Vietnam and other parts of Asia for Newsweek in the fall of 1945, and then wrote a book about the experience, a very interesting book. For him, um, the United States was, quote, a shining temple of virtue. A, a shining temple of virtue, of righteousness, where men were like gods amid, amid unending poverty, unquote. It was a country of awesome might, a country that could endure a string of defeats against a seemingly unstoppable foe, roar back to deliver a crushing and emphatic blow, and thereby strand a, stand a, uh, astride all of Asia. Amazingly enough, however, in this conception of the United States, maybe not the reality, Amazingly enough, America did not seek to use this power to engage in a colonial power grab. On the contrary, the U.S. sought to relinquish ter territorial control, as evidenced by the recently deceased Franklin Roosevelt's wartime pronouncements regarding uh, colonialism, and by Washington's formal commitment to granting independence to the Philippines. Now, Isaacs acknowledged that these were partial truths at best. But tens of millions of Asians, many of them possessing scant knowledge of the outside world, believed them, which to Isaacs was very important. For them, the United States could be both altruistic and wise, altruistic enough to side with the cause of freedom for its own sake, wise enough to see that continued imperialism in the British, Dutch, French, and Japanese style would bring no peace anywhere. So for self-interested reasons, Washington leaders ought to be on the side of change in Asia. Surely the United States would see all of this, these nationalists told each other and, one, uh, and themselves. FDR had seen it, after all. Now FDR was no longer on the scene, 
But if the president, the former president of the United States, could see the folly of European colonialism and its continuation, then surely his successors would as well. Surely Harry Truman would see that America's post-war aims dovetailed perfectly with the aims of us, of nationalists. Now Ho Chi Minh, needless to say a key figure in my book, Ho, being more far-sighted perhaps than most, had his suspicions on this score, had his suspicions about whether the U.S. would really see things in this way. But even Ho, for a long time, held to the belief, what he thought was a well-founded belief, that the Atlantic Charter's principles would animate the post-war world, that the United States would be his ally in his quest for independence. OSS officials, after all, who had met with Ho, OSS officials believed this. Shouldn't that count for something? Ultimately, no. As I show in the book, Washington officials would not prevent a French return to Indochina. Not then, in the fall of 1945, not a year later, in the fall of 1946, which is when the real uh, large-scale fighting broke out. France had made its intentions clear and the Truman administration did not dare defy a European ally that it deemed crucial to the world order for the mere sake of honoring principles of the Atlantic Charter. Even on its own terms, there are reasons to question the logic of the administration's policy. Not only, by the way, in hindsight, but in the context of its own time. Was it in fact logical, given the unquestioned importance of, uh, of uh, ensuring a strong France in Europe, was it logical to support its hardline posture against a formidable nationalist movement in the far reaches of Southeast Asia? The looming conflict in Vietnam was sure to drain French strength away from Europe, after all, to consume resources that all Paris officials knew were scarce to begin with, perhaps ultimately compelling Washington to, in effect, pay twice, once to bolster France in Europe, once to strengthen it in Indochina. Now, how things might have gone if Truman had chosen differently is a tantalizing counterfactual, a tantalizing what-if question. We can come back to that if anybody's interested. I think there is scarce evidence that Ho Chi Minh would have allied himself with the United States in this emerging East-West divide, or that a reunified Vietnam under his leadership would have chosen a non-communist path. Ho Chi Minh, by this point, was a committed, dedicated, communist. But neither should we assume that Ho necessarily would have aligned his nation closely with the Soviet Union in the Cold War. He might well have opted for an independent communist course of the type that Yugoslav leader Josip Broz Tito would follow. And certainly this much seems clear, at least to me. A decision by the Truman administration to support Vietnamese independence in the late summer and fall of 1945 would have gone a long way toward averting the mass bloodshed and destruction that was to follow. And what's important here, ladies and gentlemen, is that there were, there were people inside the American government, in the middle levels, who were making that argument at the time. This is not just Fred Logeval, uh, uh, the historian, saying, ah, now we see what would have been the smarter course for the United States. This brings me to the second point that I want to talk with you about, namely contingency and structure. Something that I suspect many of us in this room confront in our work very often, though political scientists probably somewhat less than historians, historians probably in turn somewhat less than literary theorists. In retrospect, given the broader historical context, there is, I think, ultimately an air of inevitability about the flow of events in this story that I'm telling as there is about a great river. A prostrate France, having been overrun by Nazi Germany uh, in six weeks in 1940, and further humiliated by the advancing Japanese, sought after 1945 to reassert control. This at a time when the whole edifice of the European imperialist, imperial system was crumbling. How could she possibly hope to succeed? Add to this the ruthless discipline, tenacity, and fighting skill of the Viet Minh, and the comparative weakness of non-communist Vietnamese nationalists 
who, by the way, are an important part of this story, but the comparative weakness of them. And it becomes seemingly all but impossible to imagine a different result than the one that occurred. Yet, and you can see where I'm going, the story of the French-Indochina War and its aftermath is a contingent one to a degree, full of alternative political choices, major and minor, taken and rejected in the major capitals that we're dealing with. It's a reminder to us that to the decision makers of the past, the future was merely a set of possibilities. If the decolonization of Indochina was bound to occur, the process could have played out differently in a variety of ways, as in fact the experience of European colonies in other parts of Southeast Asia and South Asia showed. Moreover, difficult though it is for us to imagine or to remember now, in the early going the odds were against the Viet Minh. They were weak and vulnerable in military and diplomatic terms, a reality that was not lost on Ho, a political pragmatist who tried very hard, as I suggested, not only to get uh, American backing for his cause, but also tried to head off war with France, um, tried to get Soviet support. Stalin would, ha would have, uh, Stalin had no interest. For Stalin, the key issues were in Europe, and moreover, moreover Stalin mistrusted Ho. He thought Ho to be far too independent-minded. Even the French Communist Party, which was anxious to appear moderate, uh, to, to seem to be a patriotic force before the French electorate, even the French Communist Party turned its back on Ho, and in fact, I show, uh, connived in the reconquest of Indochina. So the Viet Minh fought for a long time alone, largely isolated in non-Asian world opinion. The French had a massive superiority in weapons, could take any part of the country that they really wanted, as the Americans could later. Um, even after Chinese aid started to flow in a serious way in 1950, the French could call on their own even more powerful patron in the form of the United States. And what we find, again, something that I didn't expect when I started my research, is that in fact Viet Minh forces under Zap had to endure tremendous hardships. And at the end of the struggle against the French were in fact themselves on the ropes. I don't think it's fanciful to argue that the outcome at Dien Bien Phu could have been different, which is not to say that France as a result would have won the war and that you know, Vietnam in 2012 would be under colonial control. But the war could have had a different outcome than it had, at least in the short term, which is something we can discuss. Politically as well, Ho always had opposition to his rule, um, both before 1954 and after. What if Paris made far-reaching concessions to a rival Vietnamese regime, involving at least the transfer of some sovereignty, some legislative uh, and executive authority to a Vietnamese rival government. This could be a disaster for Ho, and he understood this. He worried about this, and in fact, the French made moves in that direction. After 1954, what if the government under Ngo Dinh Diem in South Vietnam, what if it um, strengthened its authority to, authority to the point that it could doom forever Ho's vision of a reunified Vietnam under communist control. That was a live possibility, much debated in North Vietnamese headquarters after 1954, uh, and something that Ho, it's clear, worried about. These are alternative, uh, these are unrealized alternatives. And this is not to suggest, by the way, people, that they were ever necessarily close to being realized. To argue for contingency and the inherent plausibility of alternative outcomes is not to say all were equally, prop uh, equally probable. This is the advantage that hindsight affords. So, for example, though many senior French officials understood that in Vietnamese nationalism they faced a very potent entity, one made immeasurably stronger by the nature and outcome of the Pacific War, they could never bring themselves, the French, to grant the concessions necessary to have a hope of mollifying this force. An independent Vietnamese nation-state, wholly or even mostly outside their control, 
remained, remained outside their imaginations. They could not make the mental leap required. And there's a French scholar, Paul Muse, that some of you know about. And Paul Muse, in some of his writings, made this point, I think, particularly well. They could not make the mental leap required. American officials, who pressed Paris very hard to grant full independence to Vietnam and continue the war. This was the American refrain. Grant the Vietnamese their independence and stay in the war. American officials could never comprehend the basic problem. Why should France fight a dangerous, bloody, inconclusive war that would end in the abandonment of French interests in Asia? The French would say, why should we do this? You're asking us to continue this war, to sacrifice our young men, uh, all for the purpose of then relinquishing uh, any control that we have. So my point is that for the French, even though I want to argue for contingency and, and the, the possible uh, a range of different outcomes, for the French we make a mistake if we overplay the idea that Paris leaders might easily have gone a different way, might easily have chosen differently. And I would say to you this afternoon that the same is true of the, of the United States, of the Americans. From the beginning, as I suggested a, a few minutes ago, from before the time the shooting started, there were skeptics on the American side. During World War II, Franklin Roosevelt was their champion. And it's not fanciful to believe, some of you might object and tell me that you object, but let me try this out for you. Let's try, try this out on you. It's not fanciful to believe it's a counterfactual. Had FDR lived beyond 1945, he would have tried to keep France from forcibly reclaiming control of Indochina, and he might well have succeeded, thereby changing the course of history. But of course, Roosevelt did not survive. Um, he died in April. And soon thereafter, patterns of thought were laid down that would, I think, in an in a, in a important way, shape, maybe even drive American policy for the next 15 or 20 years. American leaders in this period always had choices about which way to go. As Frank said at the beginning of my book, Choosing War, dealing with the long 1964, as late as that period, I argue in that book, American leaders had choices about which way to go. These are choices evident not only in retrospect but in the context of the time. Yet, we should acknowledge that the policy always moved in the same direction, which was in the direction of deeper U.S. involvement. Successive administrations could have shifted course, but they never did. Hence the danger of too much emphasis on contingency. It can blind us to the continuities that are very much part of of American policy, and for that matter, French policy, in this story, which is the connection to my third point, um, and I'm going to be brief on this. The third point is this. To an extraordinary degree, Americans followed in the footsteps of the French. To study these two wars in succession, if you'll concede, for, if, if for the sake of argument, we can talk about them as two separate wars. Some historians suggest that it's really one conflict, but for the moment, let's refer to them as two wars. To study these two wars in succession is to experience feelings of deja vu, certainly to a degree that I didn't anticipate when I started, and I don't think is adequately um, underscored in the existing literature. So that the soldierly complaints about the difficulty of telling friend from foe, about the, for, about the poor fighting spirit among our, as opposed to their, Vietnamese troops. The gripes by commanders about timorous and meddling politicians back home. The solemn, serious warnings against withdrawal on the grounds that it will uh, mean that those who have died in the war have died in vain. The warnings against premature negotiations. All of these that were ubiquitous were heard so frequently in 1967 and 68, were also heard in 1948 and 49. The same was true of the tactical and strategic innovations that U.S. planners offered up. 
Most of these, including the concept of counterinsurgency, as the Americans would call it, had been tried also under the French. Always there was the promises of imminent success of corners about to be turned. Meanwhile, civilian leaders, and I think this is a, this is a principal theme in the book, civilian leaders in Paris as much as in Washington later box themselves in. It's curious to me how politicians do this time and time again. Box themselves in with their constant public affirmations of the conflict, conflict's importance, on the one hand, and the certainty of ultimate success, on the other hand. To order a halt and to reverse course would be to call into question their own judgment, their country's judgment. It would be to threaten their careers. Never underestimate the importance of careerism in these decisions. Their reputations would be threatened. Far better in the short term to stay the course, to forge ahead and hope for the best, to ignore the warning signs, the contrary intelligence, the contrary diplomatic reports. I think what you find when you look at the French war, and this is, this is quite, I think, remarkable, is that for each year after, certainly 1949, the struggle for senior French policymakers became less about the future of Indochina, less about geopolitical concerns, and more about domestic political strategizing, careerism, and satiating powerful interest groups at home. The main objective now was to avoid embarrassment, to hang on, and to muddle through, at least until the next vote of confidence or the next election. Daniel Ellsberg would refer to this when he was talking about the American war. Daniel Ellsberg, Ellsberg would refer to this as the stalemate machine. Um, I think it was operational also in the French war. Now, what about the general public? general public was for a long time apathetic about the war. Most French voters, as with most American voters later, were too preoccupied with their own lives to become interested in a small Asian country thousands of miles away. The fact that, Amer that, that, the, public, that the French public was not that interested didn't lessen this imperative, ironically enough, to, to, to stand firm, even if in theory it should have. It merely made it easier for officials to offer rote affirmations in favor of the status quo. Now, what I also suggest in the book, and I won't talk about here, is that for a long time, American officials convinced themselves that these remarkable similarities between the French experience and their own were not really there. What mattered, they said, was that the French are a decadent people trying vain, vainly to hold on to their colonial empire. They have a weak military. They're far too dependent on the foreign legion, whose, whose um, loyalty is suspect at best. Um, and they fought badly in Indochina, and they deserve to lose. We, on the other hand, the United States, we are militarily infinitely more powerful. We are there to help the Vietnamese, and then we will go home. We're untainted by colonialism, and we're the possessor of the mightiest arsenal that the world has ever seen. And the Vietnamese will now have something to fight for. The kind of fence-sitting, the cupidity of, of, of the Vietnamese under the French will no longer be a factor, because now the Vietnamese have something to fight for. And I suggest uh, in the book, in the conclusion, really, that this belief was, for the most part, self-delusion. For one thing, the French Expeditionary Corps fought well, for the most part, and bravely. And I also suggest that the French war was also America's war. Washington footed much of the bill, supplied most of the weaponry, and pressed Paris leaders to hang tough when their will faltered. The, the Americans, by the end, were much more focused on this war, much more interested in this war, much more committed to this war than were the French. Let me conclude with a, by, with a reference to a gentleman uh, who figures quite prominently in the book, and you will all know, I think, his name, or most of you. He's a Frenchman, and I'm moving ahead to 1965 as we finish. The large-scale American uh, escalation is now getting underway. This Frenchman had long since been transplanted to the United States, 
and he felt a gripping sense of foreboding as 1965 progressed. His name is Bernard Fall. Over the previous decade, Fall had become America's most respected expert on the Indochina War, or on the first Indochina War, as it was now becoming known. The author of numerous books and articles notable for their informed and dispassionate analysis. Fall, interestingly enough, was much less categorical than many critics, including French critics, were about America's prospects in Vietnam. He thought superficial the casual way some critics of U.S. involvement invoked the French analogy. The United States in 1965, after all, Fall said, was immensely more powerful than its Western ally had ever been, especially in the air, and Fall attached a lot of importance to American air power. But even as he made this comparison, even as he called attention to the problems in the analogy, Fall doubted that it would make a decisive difference in the end. The unleashing of massive American fire, firepower might make the war, quote, military unlosable, unquote, in the short term, but at immense cost, Fall said, the destruction of Vietnam. And he quoted Tacitus when he said, they have made a desert and called it peace. Even then, Fall said, Ho's communists might not be vanquished, for in this conflict, military prowess meant only so much. The war had to be won politically if it was to be won at all. This was the pivotal point about the French analogy, Fall maintained. This was the lesson that must be learned, and yet Americans seemed unwilling to learn it. One wonders what Bernard Fall would have made of America's later military interventions if he had lived. But we won't know, because he was killed while accompanying U.S. troops in the field in 1967 in South Vietnam. Certainly, this astonishingly prolific writer, had he lived, would have produced more important books and articles on the struggle for Vietnam, works that would have reached a wide audience and added enormously to Americans' collective knowledge. Not least, I'm guessing, Bernard Fall would have reminded us, time and again, that any serious effort at understanding America's Vietnam enterprise must range beyond the period of heavy U.S. involvement to the era that came before. For as Fall once said, and I quote, Americans were dreaming different dreams than the French, but walking in the same footsteps. Thank you. Gave us so much to think about, and it, it's striking. I kept thinking about, you wrote the book about the second war first, and then the first war second. It'd be very interesting to hear how that shifts your perspective on the second war. I've told Fred a lot about our audience and in sort of praiseworthy terms that it's this wonderful mix of students, undergraduate and graduate, uh, faculty from a variety of departments and people from the community. So I told them you're very smart and I also told them that you keep your questions, uh, you make them questions, not statements, and you keep them uh, under a minute. So don't let me down. Don't I'm timing. Don't prove me to be a liar here. And so I'm going to, one of the wonderful things about bringing someone like Fred here is to get him a chance to engage with the students. And I always like to take the first question from the students. So if you, we have a student out there who wants to, uh, wants to go first. If you could, with each question, let us know who you are. And then... Yeah, hi, my name is Simon, I'm a PhD student. Uh, on the topic of the puppy communists and their effective abandonment of hope, could you speak a bit more to the, uh, the roots of that and how that element of domestic policy and politics shaped that foreign policy. And secondly, um, you touched on the fact that the foreign region did a lot of the fighting, mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. Uh, would, you, would you say that perceptions at home of the war were colored at all by the fact that effectively it was being fought abroad by the other uh, mm -hmm. at the time? Then I think largely German. Yeah, a majority were German. Um. Um, well, look, the French Communist Party, um, which I should say, I don't want to suggest that there's no change in the Communist Party's position. In the early going, uh, they are vociferously on the side of reclaiming French control into the spring of 1947, basically. Um, certainly not standing in the way, not 
supporting what Ho Chi Minh wants, in fact, as I suggested, conniving in the reconquest of Indochina. I think Communist Party leaders in 45 and 46 and 47 um, had designs on winning control in terms of domestic politics. Uh, they thought it important, as I suggested earlier, to, to appear patriotic uh, and to appear to be a moderate force. They were much more interested, as Ho Chi Minh had already learned to his sorrow in the interwar years, much more interested in European issues um, and much more focused on Germany uh, and the prospect of, of a revived German uh, power than about Indochina. Uh, once it became clear that they were not going to have the success and not to have the level of, of, of power in, in, in French politics that they had envisioned, then their position begins to change and they become much more outspoken in opposition to the war, much more uh, um, uh, forceful in, in, in arguing for direct negotiations with Ho Chi Minh. So I think it's fair to say that as time progresses, the position changes. But even then, Ho Chi Minh has reason to be disappointed with the French Communist Party. Really, throughout the war, I think he expects more from them than he, than he ever really gets, partly because their, their domestic position uh, becomes weaker, I think it's fair to say, over, over time. I think on the, on the Legion, no question. Uh, this, in a way, is, I suppose, self-evident, that if you have got uh, a kind of mercenary force, if you have got uh, a foreign legion, which by definition is not French, doing a lot of the fighting, and then of course also colonial troops um, from, uh, from various parts of French Africa in particular. And finally, you've got a lot of indigenous troops, a lot of Vietnamese in particular, making up the, the bulk of the fighting force of the, of the French Union troops, of the French Expeditionary Corps. Then uh, your typical French baker and butcher and uh, you know, uh, teacher is going to be less concerned about what's going on out there, less interested in, in, in the course of the war. I think it provided a certain cover for Bidot and for, um, for de Gaulle, uh, uh, for de Latre and others who are in a position of, to, to make these decisions regarding the war than, than if you'd had um, French conscripts. And no French government could send uh, conscripts um, to, to that theater, and so they were relying a lot on the the legionnaires, among others. Well, Fred, Fred, that was a great talk. I really enjoyed your focus on continuing to do that better than almost anyone else. It was really wonderful. Um, I'm struck, though, by the fact that uh, in your first book, you have a president who's, whose office ends early, and you have a transitional president who has to make big decisions. And in the book and in your talk today, you highlighted uh, Truman's role, which is not dissimilar in both cases, you have administrations that are ended quickly, and a transitional president who's not well informed of policy having to make difficult choices. Uh, how large should that loom in our discussions of war and peace decisions? And is that a contingency, or is that actually a structural issue? That presidents, now that turning to your, the book you wrote with, with Campbell Craig, that presidents actually face an incentive, especially when they're insecure, to act tough first mm. and ask tough questions later. Mm -hmm. uh, and the implied FDR contingency, of course, is that FDR was in a position to ask tougher questions than, other, than a, a senator from Missouri, mm -hmm. not what we would be, or so, a senator from Texas. You know, it's a really interesting point you make, Jeremy. Uh, I'm not quite sure, and this, this is maybe an admission that I should not make with this August uh, audience. I'm not sure I've actually quite thought about it in, in those terms, and it's a really interesting way to think about it. I, you know, uh, a knee-jerk answer would be to say that the sample is too small, uh, and so to, 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 to suggest that there is this comparison uh, in, in these two instances that we can, we can say meaningful things about is problematic, and yet I think there's something to this idea, uh, and I do think it matters that, as you say, both of these presidents come in at this particular point in time, uh, following presidents who in both cases have died suddenly. Now with FDR, we knew that his health was failing. People knew that it was only a matter of time. But nevertheless, you've got somebody thrust into this position and having to make difficult decisions uh, in, in this environment. And I do think the other connection that could be made, Jeremy, and I think, I think you probably would agree, um, is that Democrats 
in particular feel a vulnerability on foreign policy and a need to, to, to be tough that perhaps, perhaps Republicans didn't to the same extent. Bear in mind that Truman makes key decisions in the spring of 1950 and later in 1950 as a, after Korea, the Korean War begins, but in the context of a, of a more charged domestic political atmosphere as a result of the supposed loss of China. McCarthy makes his speech in February of 1950 and, and, and a kind of, which is something Kamala Craig and I do talk about, a, a much more uh, charged domestic uh, environment exists for Truman as he's making some of these decisions. And I think uh, Lyndon Johnson, ironically, uh, misread, I think, the lessons from that earlier period. I think he thought uh, that the loss of China is what lost the election for Democrats in 1952. I would say it's more accurate to say that what lost it for them is what happened subsequent to that supposed loss of China, which is that the United States got involved in a messy, long, difficult war in Korea. But I think both presidents felt... Um, felt a potential vulnerability that I think matters. And it matters maybe in part for the reason you suggested, which is that they're coming in new and inexperienced and in unexpected circumstances. But also it may have a, a partisan dimension. It's also possible that you want to think better of the president who preceded, because the president who preceded, we don't know about the decisions they made. I don't say that to be critical. I, I ask that methodologically. No, I think that's, that's a fair point. Uh, I do think, however, in response to that, that one can and one should as a historian look very closely at the, at the archival, at the documentary record uh, before what we might call the branching point uh, in counterfactual analysis. So what, what is being said and done in the American government before, in this case, the two deaths, compare that to what's being done after. And I think you see, I think you see important differences. Uh, as you know, I've suggested this with JFK, but it's also to some extent with FDR. Thanks very much for that. Fascinating talk. I mentioned Eleanor here. I wanted to follow up on Jeremy's question again on the question of contingency in this 1945 window, but from a slightly different angle. Two <coughs> questions on what really would have been possible at the time. One is when you looked at Poe's overtures to the Truman administration in 1945, and as you looked at some of the internal documents on you know, American officials' delivery and how do we respond to this, which ended up being a non response, do you see any evidence of China? shaping, in 1945, shaping American perceptions, not China as a geopolitical issue, but as an ideological lens, that mm -hmm. you've got Mao, who is this revolutionary nationalist leader who also has his communist identity, and we've decided we're going to oppose him, and we look at Ho through that, through that lens in 1945, that you may say he's a nationalist, but uh, mm -hmm. we only know how to deal with communist masquerading as nationalist uh, in, in Asia. Yeah. The second part of the question, also on contingency in 1945, I find plausible that FDR would have taken a much, or would have tried to take a much firmer line with the French than Truman did in saying, you know, hands off, uh, decolonization uh, is the way to go. But what I find less plausible is that the French would have listened, given yeah. FDR's poisonous relationship with de Gaulle. Yeah. Uh, I, mm -hmm. Now, maybe they don't have to listen to him. FDR just has to say, no support for you guys, and there are stuff that you. Uh, yeah. Well, on the, on the second point, I think it's, it's a very reasonable counter. And when I, when I suggested a tad defensively a few minutes ago, let me see what you guys think of this. His, you know, when I suggested that FDR lives and the outcome is different. It's, it's a fair point. I think that I, we're, what one could say in addition in support of your, your skepticism is that it's one thing to be opposed to a French return to Indochina in 1942 and 1943, when the geopolitical situation is much more fluid. It's another thing to do it in 44 and 45. And in fact, towards the end of his life, in the last few months of his, of his life, FDR did soften his opposition. Some historians, my good friend Mark Bradley being among them, I think take that too far, and they suggest that FDR had abandoned his, 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 his opposition. Uh, I don't think that's the case, but he had changed, and I think that goes to uh, that goes to your point. I still think, on your second point, that uh, at least tacit American support for the colonial enterprise shipping. was critical to. Uh, we'll come back to shipping. Was critical to um, to French endeavors in the fall of 1945, and the, I think the French uh, documents bear this out that they thought they needed 
uh, at least a kind of benevolent neutrality on the part of the United States if they were going to do this. Uh, and they got it. And I'm not convinced they would have had it from FDR. Um, now, uh, you were asking on the first point, remind me. About the perceptions of Mao in 19- Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, less so in 45, Will, uh, than in, um, even in 46, but certainly in 47, as the Civil War rages in China, um, and as the French become very clever, and I don't know if Mark is still here, but Mark deals with this so well in Assuming the Burden, the degree to which the French see that they can play, well, you could say they, can, they play the Americans, uh, but certainly that they can play up and they can argue that this is part of a broader emerging Cold War struggle in which Mao is a key figure. What we're doing in Indochina is really helping to protect this part of the world against this communist menace. In 45, I don't see it uh, nearly as much. Um, and it may simply be because, again, the French haven't really started to make that argument yet in 45. I think it starts a little bit later. I think the, the course of the Chinese Civil War has a bearing on, on what is perceived uh, in that period. So in 45, I think U.S. officials are much more focused on the implications for Europe. What happens if an already weak France becomes even weaker in the heart of Europe in terms of this emerging struggle with the Soviet Union, in terms of the French Communist, Communist Party's fortunes? Maybe, it'll, maybe they'll soar even higher. It's for that reason that we need to give at least tacit approval to this, or at least not stand in the way of a French return. The Chinese thing comes in later. The shipping, would you, did you want to elaborate your shipping point, sir? Well, sure. The nation requires shipholds to get all their forces from metropolitan France or from crossing from there mm-hmm. over to uh, Vietnam, and they have no ships whatsoever. No. No. And in the book, I, yeah. Yeah, and I suggest in the book that the first, one could say the first direct American assistance is precisely that in the fall of 1945 when American ships helped to bring what will become the French Expeditionary Corps uh, in Indochina, uh, helps to bring them to Indochina. By the way, many of those forces are also wearing surplus U.S. gear. Uh, Many of them are carrying uh, American weapons. So the aid, even though it's not yet formal by any means and doesn't become large scale in terms of formal until 1950, is already important. I have seen no evidence to support uh, that theory. Maybe somebody else has, but, um, and I think it's far-fetched. So I'll student back there. Yes, I just had a general question. Uh, today, do you think America has learned uh, any lessons or the correct lessons from its involvement in Vietnam? And I guess more specifically, I'm, I'm, I know this is very general, Well, those are good questions. Um, I don't know. I think that a lot of Americans have learned, if, to use your word, from the Vietnam experience. Um, we were talking a little bit about this um, earlier today in a session that we had. Um, I was interested in reading James Mann's new book, which is called The Obamians. I always, I always trip over the title, but I think it's The Obamians. And in, if you've read the book, Uh, Jim Mann, a reporter, formerly with the Washington Post. In that book, he makes very clear, in fact, he says it time and again, that the Obama administration, including Obama himself, have not been interested in hearing about Vietnam. They're tired of the Vietnam analogy. They they don't like when people keep bringing up Vietnam as as something to be be reckoned with in terms of uh, especially Afghanistan. Um, And I think that's unfortunate um, because I do think that um, though analogies always must be used with care, 
I think that Vietnam has a lot to teach us in terms of understanding more recent interventions. I think that there are interesting parallels between um, the Vietnam War and the Iraq invasion. I think there are interesting things that, um, that Obama and his aides could take away from Vietnam in terms of, uh, in terms of, uh, of Afghanistan. Um, but you know, a, a cynic or a skeptic would say that, no, we don't really learn, that new administrations come in, they think they can do it differently, they still are tempted by the idea that America is omnipotent or that American military power can ultimately prevail. Um, and that the, the, the troubles that befell the United States and before that France in, Indo, in, in Indochina won't happen, um, won't happen uh, again. And, you know, in terms of the syndrome, well, maybe I've just answered that question, that it, it's, uh, it's something that um, I think policymakers after Vietnam, maybe for a time, as you say, they adhere to this idea, but, you know, only so long before they thought that they could do it differently. Can I ask you sure. a comment on the question I needed to add? What are your thoughts now, your thoughts about the long 1964 shifted as a result of a decade working on the, working on the first of the war in the I remember being struck reading that book that this was this clear decision point, things contingency could run other directions, but mm -hmm. do you feel the same way after, I get the sense that there's so much more yeah. up this. Now, how would you, That's would you recharacterize that book at all after I was, a, I was afraid I'd get that question. No, I wasn't. Um, uh, but uh, believe me, in the course of drafting Embers of War, I thought about this a lot. And I thought about what people like Frank Evan would, uh, would say. Um, you know, in large part, I think not. Uh, I think that the argument that I would make today, if I were writing Choosing War Now, uh, would be substantially the same. Um, in fact, in some ways, I might push the argument a bit further. Uh, and, and suggest that, um, because we've, we've gotten more evidence since I wrote the book about the very trenchant warnings that Lyndon Johnson received, uh, even from people who were hawks. So for example, I don't think I have much in the book on what the Joint Chiefs of Staff were telling Lyndon Johnson in the spring of 1965. Even as they were advocating escalation, the JCS said, this is going to take five years and it's going to take 500,000 troops, Mr. President. And it's going to get a lot worse before it can get better. Um, Johnson was getting that information from, from, from various quarters, even as he was making this decision, or before he made the, the cross the Rubicon, if you will. And that's, that's ammunition to some extent that I didn't have in that first book. What I think is different, um, and I will acknowledge here if nobody says a word to anybody, is that what I referred to at the end of my talk, the patterns of thought that were laid down even in the late 1940s, mattered maybe more than I suggested in Choosing War. Now, in that book, of course, I, I was focused on a much shorter period of time, but there would have been a way for me to suggest that, yes, there are, there is still, there are still um, uh, alternatives here, understood in the context of the time. Vice President Hubert Humphrey and others who were saying, let's not do this. But perhaps I would have acknowledged more than I did that we also have to look at structure. We also have to look at the kind of subterranean forces that are, that are driving the United States when the difficult moments come toward greater involvement rather than lesser involvement. So it probably changes the argument in a way, but I don't think at the core. You postulated what might have happened if FDR had, had lived. Yeah. If you do the same for JFK, how might the war have been fought differently, mm. if at all it had been, mm -hmm. had he lived mm. for, say, the last five years of his administration, as opposed to the way mm -hmm. Johnson took the war? Well, I opened the book. Couldn't resist. I opened the book with John F. Kennedy visiting Indochina as a young congressman in 1951. He's preparing for a Senate run the following year. His dad is pushing him to run for the Senate. 
and he's basically agreed to do so. And he goes on a worldwide tour, or at least much of the world he goes to see with his brother Bobby and his sister Patricia to boost his foreign policy credentials. And on that visit in 1951, we see in JFK's diary, which is so interesting, him asking very, very penetrating questions about what Western military power is going to be able to do in this neck of the woods. He's skeptical that the French can win. He wonders whether, I think at least by implications, he wonders whether any Western power can succeed in the face of this nationalist opposition in places like Indochina. And so I open the book this way, and I leave the question hanging. I think Kennedy then, as a senator, uh, keeps that um, kind of searching quality to his analysis, but he also becomes more hawkish. I think in part because he's starting now to think about running for president. Uh, and so we see his rhetoric in the second half of the 1950s shift to some degree. Even now he's asking these questions. For example, I have a quote in my epilogue about JFK talking about the Algerian War in 1957. And you could substitute Algeria for Vietnam in that speech, and it would be a very prophetic warning about what, is, what lies ahead. Um, so he's a very interesting character. Um, Nevertheless, as we know, in 61 and 62, he expands American involvement in Indochina. I think he's still, behind closed doors, a skeptic. But that's, that's difficult to, to, to prove. Um, but as a result, to get to your question, and this is something I've dealt with in my first book, Choosing War, I have a little section in the conclusion that I subtitled, If, if Oswald Had Missed. So it's on this question. And the conclusion that I draw is, of course, first, we will never know. Um, but that the best argument that I can come up with is that a surviving Kennedy, if he comes back from Dallas alive, uh, would not have Americanized the war in the way that um, Lyndon Johnson did. Um, I think that he would have found it difficult to withdraw. But Bill Bundy, for example, had, William Bundy, who was a middle-level official in the State Department, had what he called a mid-level, uh, uh, a middle-way approach, which is a much smaller escalation uh, and puts a ceiling on it. And, you know, then you get into to, to lots of variables. But I, I think that for various reasons that I lay out in this book, his, the, the way that Kennedy used his advisory system, the, the fact that he had a military record in World War II, the fact that... Um, the key decisions for, for Kennedy comes in his second and last term. He doesn't have to think about re-election. Whereas for Johnson, that's of course still uh, uh, technically his first term. You know, for, for several reasons, I'm inclined to think that he would not have gone at least to the kind of large-scale Americanization that Johnson went. Fred, I think, as you know, one of the things that Strauss and prides itself on is bringing the past to life, really focusing on not just for its own sake, but to illuminate the current dilemmas and challenges we face. And I, I can't think of a better presentation, a more interesting presentation that uh, really fits in with that goal and fits in with that mission of ours. So thank you so much. Please join me.